Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. High drama at the high court, grandstanding at Senate hearings, distrust on all sides, nominations made by presidents and ignored or voted down by the Senate or withdrawn due to scandal, calumny, or nominee intellectual nullity or professional capacity issues. The personal characters of nominees assailed, questions asked of nominees, detailed answers politely refused, cries of illegitimacy and calls for reform. All of this and more is on offer in Ilya Shapiro's 2020 book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Everyone who cares about the law and the history and the future of the United States should read this book. It offers something to every sort of reader. First, it is a serious work of scholarship that examines such questions as, is the court, as progressives claim, really in some sort of crisis and merely a tool of a cabal involving the rather unlikely combination of corporate America and the supposedly evil religious right? Or, as many on the right argue, has the legislative branch, for expediency's sake and in a cowardly and self-serving fashion, abrogated its constitutional responsibilities, thereby ceding far too much power to both the administrative state and the courts? Shapiro parses these questions with authority, weighing the pros and cons of the various reform measures of recent years with shrewdness, fairness, and wit. Second, for general readers, it is an entertaining and substantive tour of the American political and legal landscape since the founding era, and abounds in fascinating facts, e.g. when the first public Senate hearings on a Supreme Court nominee were held, the first time such a nominee testified in person before the Senate, the first time such hearings were televised. We learn about everything from the famous midnight judges to the fiascos of the nomination of Harriet Myers and those of Hainsworth and Carswell. One of the features of the book that is most appealing is that such people are presented as distinct individuals and not as punchlines. The book is perfectly timed given that it was published just before the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg in the Senate hearings on the confirmation of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett. This is the book to turn to in coming years for solid analysis as the left pushes for reform of not only the Supreme Court, but the entire federal judiciary, which Shapiro also discusses in depth. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Ilya Shapiro, author of the 2020 book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. Thank you for joining us today, Ilya. Happy to be with you. Great. First of all, I want to congratulate you on the success of this book. It's been widely reviewed and praised, and you have been much in demand as an interviewee about it. One of the things I most refresh, I find most refreshing about you as an author, as a person, is that you aren't shy about touting your book and telling your listeners where they can buy a copy. So how are sales going? <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, my, my publicist at Regnery, at my publisher, told me I needed to have a lot of the books behind me when I appear on TV or do other video podcasts, what have you. And so there was, uh, I'm, I'm in Florida this month with my family. We're sort of taking the, the rest of the year easy. But at, back at home in Northern Virginia, uh, there was a whole kind of tableau behind me uh, of my book, which got some some uh, attention on uh, on social media. But uh, I'm doing all right. It's been three months. In fact, uh, as we record this, tomorrow will mark three months 
uh, since the book's release, and especially the first two months, which included, uh, as you noted, uh, the confirmation hearing, the nomination and confirmation hearings for Amy Comey Barrett, uh, and then uh, the election and the aftermath. Uh, it's been a, a wild ride. And uh, as you said, I appreciate that that introduction because this really, I, I wrote this uh, not just for uh, you know legal eagles, legal scholars, uh, not just for history buffs, not just for politicos, but I think there's there's something for everyone there, and I, and I certainly wrote it in a way that I hope is accessible to the general reader. You don't need specialized knowledge of of any of those fields. Well, as a general reader, I can certainly attest to that fact because it was fascinating. And I I underlined my mother joked with me. She said, "You underline the entire book." <laughs> I said, "Well, there's there's a lot to underline because it's fascinating." I also I want to mention too. You talked about your appearances online. I want to mention that you're also on Twitter, and that's a good way for listeners to follow where you're going to be appearing next. And they can also just Google your name, and they'll find many lectures that you've given, and interviews, and podcasts that you've you've done about the book, and also podcasts on other subjects as well because you're a, a, a busy scholar and and thinker. Now, onto the substance of the right. book. Right. Yeah. So just to put a finer point on that, oh, I'm, I, I'm the director of uh, constitutional studies at the Cato Institute, which has me has my fingers in, in a lot of pies. And what's interesting about being on a so-called book tour during the pandemic when you're not physically on tour is that you can do a lot of these events. I mean, I had days where I gave presentations to groups in Chicago, Miami, and Los Angeles, you know, back to back, which obviously you can't do if you're, you have to fly to all of these places. Uh, but right, if you go to my Twitter feed at iShapiro, Piro or my bio page on the Cato Institute's website, you can find a whole host of things, my writings, interviews about this book and about other issues. And it's a, it's a, you know, I I feel very fortunate to have the job I have because uh, I straddle the legal, political, academic and media worlds rather than having to inhabit uh, only one of those. Yeah, I would say you're you're very much an up and coming public intellectual is the wonderful term for that. Well, um, I appreciate the up and coming. That implies I'm young. So I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> well, you've, you've, you've what, the one the other thing I thought was was cute in your book was apropos of its background was that you say that your editor was actually promoted to the head of the publishing company. You said it never hurts to have an advocate as an editor promoted to run the whole shebang. So that was kind of cute. Um, now onto the substance of the book. You make the point early on in it about that controversies and appointments to the federal bench in general, and not just to the Supreme Court have been bones of contentious bones of contention from the earliest days of our republic could you please discuss the famous or infamous midnight judges and a bit about marbury versus madison and how this all might relate to the debates of our own day about court packing sure uh, well, I, I put together this book proposal in the wake of the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation just over two years ago now. Uh, clearly, uh, after that um, big battle, uh, the it, it was, it was uh, apparent that the Supreme Court and the confirmation process was part of the same toxic cloud, the same miasma as the rest of our national public discourse. So I really wanted to investigate. I mean, I've been a court watcher for over a decade, uh, but I wanted to understand the role that politics has played in judicial nominations and, and confirmations. I mean, those of us who are a little familiar with this topic know you know, kind of Robert Bork in 1987 and Clarence Thomas in 1991, and then the more modern times with the uh, filibusters and, and blocking lower court judges and uh, when, when Scalia died in 2016, not acting on Merrick Garland, et cetera, et cetera, all of that kind of more recent history. But what about the early days? And, you know, it, it turns out 
that uh, politics has always played a role uh, in this stuff. It's not like this is something that's very new that, uh, you know, before everyone was just uh, civic minded and all of a sudden in the last 30 years, people discovered their partisan interests. Uh, presidents and senators have always been politicians going back to George Washington, who had one of his Supreme Court nominees rejected. So uh, these these fights, uh, I mean, the, 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 the form that the political battles have taken is certainly different and the, the, the different issues uh, placating factions of within your own party, uh, regional interests. I mean, it used to be uh, you had to maintain one seat for New England, one for Pennsylvania, one for Virginia, and then the South. Uh, as the country grew, it, these kind of balance uh, issues, the issue of, of slavery, obviously, the issue of uh, regulating the uh, Industrial Revolution, different things come up in different ways uh, uh, over time. But to get back to the specifics of your question, in the early days uh, of the Republic, uh, it wasn't so much judicial philosophy as we think of it now. Are you a, a originalist or living constitutionalist? We'll, we'll get to those, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, but it was about the role of this new federal judiciary in the federal republic. Uh, and uh, as the early party system uh, emerged, uh, there was a, a very competitive election in 1800 between incumbent President John Adams, who succeeded George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson from the new Democratic Republican Party. I mean, during Washington's time, it was all Federalists. But then, uh, you know, you had different interests ar arise and a, a new party, the Democratic Republicans. And that 1800 election was pretty vicious. I mean, if you, if you think that the rhetoric uh, in our election campaigns is nasty in 2020, 2016, what have you, I mean, look at some of those pamphlets and speeches from 1800. In fact, if you Google... Uh, political campaign ads, election of 1800, somebody went to the trouble of putting together modern style uh, attack ads based on the rhetoric from 1800. And I tell you, some of it is uh, uh, is, is worse than, than what we're accustomed to now. But anyway, after uh, Jefferson beat Adams during the long lame duck, because the election was still in November, but the, uh, the new president was inaugurated until March in those days, uh, not only did John Adams nominate and have confirmed John Marshall, the great chief, the kind of the chief justice who established the centrality of the Supreme Court uh, in our in our system, uh, but also Congress, the, the outgoing Federalist Congress, created new judgeships for John Adams to fill what were known as midnight judgeships as the clock ran out on the Adams administration. And one of these judgeships was a commission uh, going to Mr. Marbury. Uh, that didn't get there uh, in time, and he sued uh, James Madison, who was the uh, the Secretary of State, to uh, to get his commission, and that's what that foundational case, Marbury versus Madison, which the issue of whether the judge gets his commission or not is kind of secondary to the idea of the Supreme Court under Chief Justice John Marshall uh, 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 reinforcing or establishing explicitly the principle of judicial review, the idea that. Uh, uh, courts can uh, review the constitutionality of uh, acts and actions of uh, federal officials. Well, speaking of that of that era, you also discuss the, the impeachment and eventual acquittal by the Senate of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. And why was that important? And was that a huge blunder by Thomas Jefferson? Yeah, Samuel Chase, uh, who was um, fairly early on, he was he was George Washington's uh, uh, second last appointee to the court serving from 1796, but got in some hot water over various political dealings, the way he uh, 
had conducted himself uh, while riding circuit. So this is one of the onerous duties of the early justices and why some people declined to be nominated or even declined to serve after they'd been confirmed. They didn't learn of their nomination until they, they'd been confirmed because of the, the distances of, of communication in the early days. Uh, but one of the onerous duties was you had to go to the different states and help the new uh, district, federal district judges uh, hear cases. And uh, while he was doing one of these things, he said some impolitic things and he was uh, impeached, but, but, but not removed. And that kind of established the standard uh, that it wasn't mere disagreements, political disagreements uh, that, that were sufficient for impeachment. It had to be some real serious, uh, well, the Constitution calls it high crimes and misdemeanors, but serious offenses against the, against the public confidence. Well, you mentioned John Marshall, and I, I, as we know, he was one of the great administrators, the the Uber, <laughs> the Ur uh, Chief Justice. But I wondered, I found fascinating in your book that you talk about the abilities, administrative abilities of many of the Chief Justices, and I was surprised to read that William Howard Taft was so skillful as a Chief Justice, as as an administrator in particular. And how does he compare in this respect to other of his, some of, of, of Taft's predecessors, notably Roger Taney. And I was surprised to learn from your book that Marshall thought highly of Taney, which is surprising to me because you, you make the point in the book that Taney was attacked for being a hack and, you know, second rater. But Marshall apparently thought, thought had, had held him in high regard. Could you talk about Taft and what it takes to be an administrator? Right. So the, the chief justice role, your... Uh, you're first among equals, but that doesn't really even explain it. You, you get the same number of votes as any other justice. You're not a tiebreaker of any sort. Um, uh, you know, in, in modern times, you get you get one more clerk um, and then you kind of administer things in various ways. But it's not like um, you, you are more powerful uh, just because uh, you're chief. So the, this administrative role uh, can be important. It's not, you know, we've had chief justices who are very strong scholars and, and uh, you know, judges, judges. We've had chief justices who were good administrators and, and weaker scholars and vice versa. And we've had some that were, were weak altogether all and, and nobody followed them. Uh, but I think what Marshall admired about Tawny, you know, in, in the modern times, uh, Tawny gets assailed as, you know, he's the author of Dred Scott, but that's not so much because he was racist or because he had retrograde views on uh, civil rights or, or slavery. Uh, he was kind of a, a, you know, not an outlier for his time, let's say. He was from Maryland, which was a slave state that did not uh, leave the Union. Uh, he tried to split the baby. He tried to have a compromise to avoid civil war, ultimately, of course, unsuccessful. And, and Dred Scott, that, that kind of splitting the baby, uh, if anything, only inflamed passions and showed that you really couldn't have uh, a jurisprudential resolution of the problem. It either had to be abolished legislatively or, as eventually happened, uh, had a war fought over it. Uh, but Marshall admi- uh, admired uh, Tawney's acumen. He admired his administrative skill. And you mentioned Taft. Uh, yes, the the only uh, chief justice or, or justice, a uh, member of the Supreme Court, to have served there after being president. And that was really his dream job. He was he didn't have mm-hmm. as much fun or didn't enjoy or wasn't as well suited uh, to the presidency as to being uh, a justice. He was really more of a lawyer than he was uh, a politician and was known not so much for um, uh, uh, shaping jurisprudence or the uh, kind of the the writing major precedent in our history, but was known for 
updating the court for the modern era, you know, serving uh, in the uh, early part of the 20th century, uh, the, the tail end of the Industrial Revolution, uh, and really kind of put in a court that um, uh, uh, respected constitutional structure and, and showed how to apply uh, different constitutional provisions at, in a rapidly changing country that was urbanizing and developing industries and innovations that had been uh, unheard of uh, in decades prior. Uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, Rehnquist as well, uh, Bill Rehnquist in the more modern times uh, was, even though when he was first nominated, when he was an associate justice, was thought of as kind of a, a conservative ideologue. By the time he became chief justice, uh, he was... Uh, more of an institutionalist and let uh, Scalia and later Thomas be the ones who were in the in the vanguard of uh, advancing originalism and, and pushing legal theory while he kind of steered the court and protected its uh, institutional role. Well, when you, you, you mentioned Rehnquist, and I wanted to ask, how does he compare as administrator to the people that bracket his own career? Well, actually, they preceded it, uh, Burl Warren and, and, well, and Warren Berger. You mentioned the book that Berger, Berger's colleagues felt that he did not run meetings well. In what respect did he just not shut people up, or did he just not reach a reach a, a, con, a conclusion that was um, actionable? Or what was his what was his major flaw, Warren Berger? That is, yeah, whether whether by his colleagues or kind of in in the, those in the know in the in the broader legal political community, he wasn't thought of as highly either as a judge or as a manager, as an administrator. I think he uh, uh, rubbed his colleagues the wrong way by kind of hedging his bets and not deciding uh, what he was going to do uh, until um, uh, everyone had expressed their opinion. And then he would take this, whichever side was in the majority, regardless of where it might logically be given his own past jurisprudence, just so he could control the opinion or assign the opinion, which is the traditional uh, job of the chief justice. That's one thing that, that all chief justices get to do when they're in the majority, they get to assign that opinion or take it for themselves. But uh, his colleagues felt that he didn't really have uh, a, a sincere intellectual position on a lot of issues that he'd just take, he just side with the majority in, in order to, to control it uh, the whole time. And, and often when he was writing an opinion, uh, it, was, it wasn't as, as clear. And so some of his colleagues felt that uh, you know they had to do the heavy lifting, even when he uh, tried to take the glory for himself as as kind of a a politician. Uh, he also uh, you know he was a, a Nixon appointee, and he was certainly more conservative than a couple of other uh, Nixon appointees, notably uh, uh, Harry Blackman, who ended up authoring uh, Roe versus Wade. But it still was disappointing to some uh, conservatives um, because he didn't have that kind of uh, jurisprudential backbone. He was more kind of political, small p political. Uh, that he he wasn't the um, the pathbreaker or the uh, 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 going uh, against or trying to reverse the what was seen as the liberal judicial activism of his predecessor of Earl Warren. Uh, and so, to some, he you know not as big a disappointment as certain other Republican appointees, uh, but was felt as uh, kind of a a weak, uh, a weak chief for, for all of those reasons. Hmm. Well, in the matter of Earl Warren, he was known for striving for consensus. And you say in your book that Ruth Bader Ginsburg strove to have the liberal ring of the court present a united front, that she had the liberals on board and with one voice. But then you mentioned that conservatives tend to be quite comfortable going their own ways when it comes to issuing their own opinions. 
was William Brennan like Ginsburg in that respect? And does Elena Kagan differ from other liberals in that she seems much more focused on trying to win over conservative justice as well? Is, is Kagan quite different from Ginsburg in that respect? Well, it's, it's, it's hard to um, make analogies like that across different eras when different issues are paramount, and especially mm-hmm. when the mix of justices uh, is different. Uh, you know, it's easier to speak with one voice when you're always in dissent. You know, the four mm-hmm. dissenters speaking with one voice, that's easier to do than when you're in the majority and you have that magic five. As, as Brennan said, we, we run by the rule of five. You know, he needed to get to the five votes. And after that, it didn't really matter how, you know, how you got there or, or what you did with it. And so similarly now with uh, the more conservative uh, justices uh, in the majority. Uh, now it's, it's six to three in terms of Republican appointed justices over Democratic appointed justices. Um, and there, there's a lot more differentiation. So even if the final result is is one that's in a more uh, originalist or conservative uh, direction, uh, different justices get there in a different way. And there's more kind of intellectual disagreement over those theories where on the left, uh, the justices, it's not that they're so much result-oriented necessarily, but the theories that they apply, whether it's being pragmatic or uh, achieving a a result that uh, is more liberty-oriented because that's what they think the Constitution has to uh, result in, or living constitutionalism, where uh, constitutional provisions or statutory ones, for that matter, uh, evolve with the times, that tends to get them to the same result uh, in all of the major uh, controversial areas. But Kagan is different from uh, from Ginsburg, yes, in terms of uh, being better able to uh, build bridges uh, to the right, or at least to the center right, to the moderates, to Chief Justice Roberts and maybe uh, Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, certainly uh, in the uh, period w- with the, uh, the eight justices after Justice Scalia passed away, it was an eight justice court for over a year. And Kagan uh, worked hard together with John Roberts to kind of fashion a court uh, in the middle, and you'd often have either Ginsburg and Sotomayor dissenting off the left, or Alito and Thomas dissenting uh, off the right. But uh, different periods are for different times. Brennan was able, both by the force of his intellect and the uh, his his political skill, uh, to control uh, a court uh, that was you know, more liberal, even though that he was still towards the left of it. Uh, but yeah, but both the intellectual and the political skills. Uh, are certainly uh, uh, a theme uh, running throughout my book that that different justices had. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I was going to ask, sp- since we're on the subject of Roberts and on the matter of chief justices, that Robert Marshall was was successful. You, you argue, or I guess it's just a general part of the historical record that he has an unusual combination of intellectual power, administrative skill, and personal warmth and charisma. That people liked him, he was lovable. There are all, all these touching anecdotes about just what, how people just like like to be around him. But how does John Roberts stack up in in those respects? That is power, intellectual power, administrative skill, and warmth and charisma. He doesn't seem like a charismatic person. And and also, you make the point several times in the book, and this was very important, I think, for listeners to to grasp, is that you argue that. Roberts is so obsessed with trying to preserve the legitimacy of the court in the eyes of the public that his judicial work sometimes collapses into jurisprudential inconsistency, or I would say incoherence, as in the matter of the individual mandate in the Obamacare case, National Federation of Independent Business versus Sibelius, that he just tied himself in knots. And it very could, I, don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's my impression of him, and that's my impression of, of some, much of what you say in the book, but I'll let you, you discuss that. 
Yeah, I mean, this, I think, goes into my broader narrative of the, the reason why, you know, here's my you know conclusion up front to the whole book. The reason why we have these contentious confirmation processes now isn't that uh, the uh, legal issues are more divisive now than they were before or that uh, senators are meaner uh, and more demagogic now than they used to be or, or anything like that, or that we have TV and Twitter. It's that at a time when over decades power has accreted in Washington and within Washington in the judiciary for, for various reasons, we can discuss that more, we have divergent interpretive theories mapping onto partisan preferences at a time when the parties are more ideologically sorted than they've been since at least the Civil War. So there's not going to be a compromise to be made in terms of a, a nominee appointed by a Republican president versus one by a Democratic president. Um, and, and it's a zero-sum game. There's a finite number of seats, whether you're talking about the nine on the Supreme Court or uh, the, those on the on the lower courts. Um, and, and so you have those battles because the incentives are to uh, do for senators is to uh, do everything they can to support or oppose a nominee uh, by their um, uh, by the president uh, of, of their or the opposing party. Um, John Marshall, you know, the, the, the way judicial philosophy worked uh, in, in, in previous times was was a little different. John Marshall, uh, however, was such a capital F federalist, meaning centralizing the power of the new republic and standing up the power of the court, that when Thomas Jefferson, going back to the to that contentious election in 1800, when he came in, the Democratic Republicans um, wanted the states to have more power and didn't like some of the direction uh, of the new federal republic. And so the new Democratic Republican Congress created more Supreme Court seats for Thomas Jefferson to fill uh, after the the capital F Federalists try to reduce the number of seats so, so Jefferson wouldn't have an opportunity to, to fill them. This can all be done, by the way, to talk about court packing by an act of Congress. So originally we had six. Then uh, when uh, during the Adams lame duck, the Congress reduced that to five. It never went down to five because nobody died or retired in the interim. Uh, until uh, the Democratic Republicans increased that back to six. Then it went to seven and it was increased to eight and nine, all for political reasons at, at, at different times as the country grew uh, as well. And it's been fixed at nine since uh, 1869. But all of the justices that Jefferson appointed, uh, uh, he was attempting to counteract um, uh, 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 Chief Justice Marshall's power, but most of them uh, came under the sway of Marshall, and so he was uh, unsuccessful. Jefferson was uh, in uh, in shifting the court. Uh, well, uh, with um, with uh, John Roberts, who holds uh, John Marshall as his big hero, he also wants to kind of guide the court and have the court be above politics, these sorts of things. But it's a different era, and uh, given the dynamics and given the irreconcilable disagreements over issues ranging from the right to bear arms, to the role of uh, race when you're dealing with uh, university admissions or employment or voting rights, uh, to the power of the federal government. Uh, uh, there's simply, uh, there's no way uh, to compromise there. So even uh, as John Roberts strives valiantly to find a middle, what he does is, as you say, twist himself into knots or, or engage in uh, a Jeffersonian term, twistifications, judicial twistifications, uh, as he did in in transmogrifying the individual mandate into a tax in order to uphold it in that NFIB case. And uh, I think the more that he acts as a, a junior varsity politician, 
uh, that is deciding issues, not as a Republican or a Democrat, but by trying to balance interests rather than deciding the law as he might see it. Um, uh, ironically, he's taking away from the court's legitimacy or the, the Supreme Court altogether. When the justices uh, think about things like legitimacy, the perceive the, the perception of the court rather than just getting the law right as they see it, I think that's when the justices tend to act uh, uh, least legitimately. Yeah, I was going to say that that's, that is a powerful argument in your book that you say that he's so concerned with the, the legitimacy of, of the court and, and having the public trusted and believe in it and poll ratings that show that it's, that's, that's a trusted institution that he just, he just, it, it, it doesn't seem to have, you use the word backbone and that what's the, you make the point in the book, what's the point of preserving the legitimacy if you never actually take a risk that, that, that what well, you have this, 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 this political capital built up over all these kind of flim flimmy decisions that you didn't, you know, didn't alienate anyone, but what's the point? And I, I wanted to mention that, for example, many social conservatives were dismayed by his vote in June medical, and in this last year, I guess it was, in uh, June medical services versus Russo, in which the Supreme Court struck down a Louisiana law that required doctors performing abortions to have admitting privileges in nearby hospitals. And Roberts, at that, in that decision, he argued that his hands were tied by stare decisis and yet in cases outside the realm of abortion, such as the labor law, Janus versus, uh, labor law case, Janus versus AFSCME, or A-F-S-C-M-E, the union, the civil service union, the president was far older, and yet he, he overturned that one. So it, it just seems like, does he even have a philosophy? Compared, and, does, and the other question I have is, as people like, like Amy Coney Barrett, who, who, you know, these brilliant intellectuals, Coney Barrett and Leo Gorsuch get on the court. Does does doesn't it seem again? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Roberts just doesn't have a philosophy or 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 the intellectual pow- power that they do. He just seems to be as if as it seems like in retrospect that his that he was all resume at the time and not a philosophy that's in the in the super in the the, the succeeding years that the Federalist Society has been able to make that a core and that he doesn't really. He probably wouldn't wouldn't win federal society support at this point, would he? Or? Right. Well, the, the the thing is, I mean, John Roberts uh, is a conservative, and he served in the Reagan administration. Uh, he's always been a, a Republican, but um, it's and it's not that he's uh, not smart enough or not intellectual enough. I mean, he was the best appellate lawyer uh, of his uh, generation, uh, very successful at the at the Supreme Court, and you know, one of one of the super lawyers of of the country. The issue is that. He is uh, of a different school of conservative thought. That is, he's about judicial restraint and minimalism, only you know, deciding as little as possible uh, the idea that judges should sit on their hands and not get involved and defer to the political branches as much as possible. Uh, there's, you know, Robert Bork was very much like that for, for, for that uh, matter. Um, so, you know, Roberts uh, cares more about judicial modes. Are you restrained versus activist, as he sees it, more than he cares about uh, theories of interpretation, whether that's originalism or textualism or, um, you know, breaking it down in a particular area uh, of law. And so he sees his role is uh, not to make headlines, not to apply any sorts of theories. And he's not uh, a misfire nomination of the sort that, say, David Souter or uh, Harry Blackman 
or John Paul Stevens, all uh, Republican appointed justices who moved to the left over their careers on the court. I don't think Roberts has evolved to the left or become less conservative. Uh, and he, you know, uh, until the last couple of years, NFIB uh, and the other Obamacare case, King versus Burwell, were really the only cases on which he deviated from kind of the expected uh, uh, conservative uh, position on, on, on things. Um, but it's really that he sees himself as the protector of the court's uh, institutional integrity, particularly as the chief justice, and particularly the last two years since Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy. And he, the chief justice, was the median vote on the court, which we hadn't had since Earl Warren, frankly. But Warren's court was so far to the left, that the median vote didn't matter that much. But uh, again, he, he, he sees himself, saw himself the last couple of years. And this explains that abortion case that you referenced and a couple of others. Um, now the dynamics are a little different because he's no longer the median vote. Uh, that would be, you know, Kavanaugh or Gorsuch or Barrett, depending on, on the issue as, as we'll see in coming years. Um, uh, but, but he, he sees his role, uh, again, less as a theorist and less as, uh, uh, trying to activate a particular vision of the law than uh, trying to be minimalist and restrained. And that harkens to that, as I mentioned, Robert Bork, that early conservative legal movement reaction to the excesses of the Warren court in the 50s and 60s, rather than saying, no, that theory is wrong. Here's a better theory. Here's originalism. That wouldn't come along till later. Instead, conservatives in the 60s said and 70s said, uh, you have to be restrained. Uh, and so that, I think, went down the wrong uh, the wrong path. And that's sort of what the Federalist Society, which is a group of conservative and libertarian uh, uh, lawyers and law students across the country, it's sort of now the, the legal elite on the conservative side, basically, uh, what they've been grappling with the last 15 years, saying that, oh, that emphasis on restraint really was mistaken. I mean, we can still battle it out about what the proper uh, original public meaning of a provision is or what the uh, statutory interpretation of some uh, legal text might be. That's that's good. But that is where the debate should be, not about whether you're uh, not deferring enough or, or deferring too much. And so uh, Roberts is of that older school of conservative thought uh, rather than um, trying to put in um, um, you know, a Scalia legal theory or a Gorsuch legal theory or what have you. Well, you made an interesting point in the book that I was quite surprised by because the cliche is that Lochner is bad law and it was it was or you know a misjudgment a misstep. But you say, well, actually, it's being it's being reevaluated. And I, I wonder if you could talk about that because I think some people might find on the left would say, really, could, could you discuss? And you, you you talk about that that some classical liberals are, judges and thinkers are are, are reevaluating Lochner. Could you give examples of who is doing that and what what in what what excesses is, are they applying that the lessons of Lochner to? Sure. So New York versus Lochner is a Supreme Court case from 1905. It involved uh, a, a New York state law that restricted the number of hours that bakers could work, ostensibly on health and safety grounds. Um, and the Supreme Court, by a vote of five to four, uh, struck down that law, saying that it violated economic liberty and specifically the freedom of contract as protected by the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was enacted uh, after the Civil War to protect individual liberty against state violations. So slavery was the 13th Amendment. The 14th Amendment was meant to protect uh, property rights, economic liberties of the newly freed uh, 
the freedmen, uh, as well as others, uh, where, where states were uh, in, invading uh, individual liberty in, in various ways. And so uh, this was seen as uh, later on, starting in the New Deal, this was seen as uh, judicial activism. Uh, mm. At the time, Oliver Wendell Holmes dissented, saying it's the court uh, imposing its laissez-faire uh, economic preferences uh, for substituting them for the uh, the preferences of the state legislature in New York. As we've learned now, it really wasn't health and safety why that law was put in. It was because the larger uh, established unionized bakeries didn't want competition from the the upstart immigrant non-union uh, smaller bakeries uh, uh, in New York. But really, there was basically no no real reason to have that kind of restriction. It wasn't that, you know, uh, if you work around flour for 10 hours rather than eight, that would, you know, hurt your health or, or, or you know, cause po- the, bread, the bread to be poisoned or, or something like that. But um, Lochner has become part of what lawyers call the anti-canon. That is one of these very famous cases that was famously decide wrong, decided wrongly. Progressives didn't like it because it invalidated state legislatures and government power. And of course, government and the technocrats knew how better to regulate economic relations. And conservatives didn't like it because they saw it as a precursor to uh, the explosion of uh, substantive due process and judges finding all sorts of rights, including to abortion, to other things that conservatives didn't like in the 60s and 70s. So it was sort of roundly uh, hated, uh, this Lochner case. Well, in the last 20 years or so, there's been a revisionism of that thinking. And it's really, um, uh, you know, acknowledging this history that it was a protectionist uh, regulation pushed by union bosses and anti-immigrant one as, as well, that it didn't really serve any rational reason. It was just an element of, of sheer state power. And so why do we necessarily, why should judges necessarily defer to state uh, legislatures uh, if there's a plausible claim that this invades an individual liberty to contract, to earn a living, uh, these sorts of things? And so we've seen in the last couple of decades, uh, le- uh, judges both at the state and federal level saying, hold on, what is your real reason for uh, requiring, for example, a moving company uh, in St. Louis to get the uh, permission of existing incumbent moving companies before you could get a license to uh, start your business uh, in the city. Not a safety issue, just like only a certain number of licenses were allowed and the licensing board for moving companies was controlled by the existing moving companies. That's purely protectionist. There's no real reason to do that. And so a court uh, uh, invalidated that kind of scheme. And this has come up uh, in different ways, uh, regulations for uh, eyebrow threaders, right? So this is a, a South Asian, right, Indian, Bangladeshi, Pakistani uh, custom of, of, of trimming uh, and sculpting uh, eyebrows uh, for women uh, using cotton thread, the special technique, not tweezers, not chemicals, you know, this different uh, technique. Uh, well, uh, in many states, to become a, a licensed, uh, to be able to practice this trade, you had to go through 2,000 hours of cosmo- cosmetology uh, licensing and training on how to do all sorts of hairstyles and all these things that are completely unrelated to this particular craft. So these sorts of regulations come up uh, again and again. And and so this thinking of, oh, well, maybe there is a role for the judiciary in pushing back on uh, regulations, not, not ones that impinge on enumerated rights like the freedom of speech or the right to keep and bear arms 
or that uh, discriminate based on race or gender or something like this. Those have always been subject to, uh, in lawyer speak, strict scrutiny, and they almost always fall if they have those kinds of restrictions. But just uh, you know, a legislature that that has no good reason uh, in layman's terms for doing what it's doing, and so judges are beginning to push back on that. Uh, and and often now it's you know, more progressives that are saying, well, you're you're Lochnerizing. Uh, Justice Breyer says that a lot. For that matter, Chief Justice Roberts does uh, often uh, as well. His dissent in the gay marriage case of Burgafell uh, versus Hodges was saying that the the court was was Lochnerizing. I think it's a little different than that. But again, the idea that judges shouldn't just sit on their hands and shouldn't debate what exact what what constitutional rights the uh, the 14th Amendment or other provisions uh, protects, uh, I think that's the, the proper role uh, of a judge. Well, you make the point in the book that the, the, the very term judicial activism has just has, has become so broad and applied by so many people to so many situations, it doesn't mean anything anymore. When, can you tell us about when that first came into vogue and, and and should it just be set on the shelf at this point because it just doesn't doesn't have any any substantive application. As yeah, a, as I mean, a, it came about in the 60s as a reaction to the Warren Court, the criticism by conservatives that the Warren Court was just making stuff up out of uh, out of whole cloth. And I think that that was a, a valid criticism uh, in, in many respects. But what it's come to mean 50 years later is it's used by everyone, left, right, middle, what have you, just for a decision or a judge that they don't like. Uh, and so it's a completely vapid uh, uh, criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if it's, you know, academics have tried to apply kind of a, a neutral definition, you know, activism is striking down a law. Well, there are plenty of striking down laws by progressives and there are plenty of striking down laws by conservatives. So which one is right? Which one is wrong? I mean, I, I don't know. So, um, these days I think it's, it's more important just to have the debate on the substance, not did you uphold or invalidate the law? But did you get the law right? What is your legal theory of the First Amendment, of uh, when to defer to administrative agencies, uh, the scope of the right to bear arms? That's, you know, th- those are big, meaty, substantive issues that judges uh, do and should be debating. But it's not about whether they're necessarily upholding or, or striking down legislation. Yeah, you make an interesting point in the book, too, that you say that Breyer was but I think it's in your book, unless I read it as I was reading around your book, that Breyer was able to slip through the confirmation process with relative ease because he's he was administrative. A lot of his work was an administrative law, which wasn't a big constitution, didn't have any of the the hot button issues in his background. That right, and, and so, to some extent with with Kavanaugh, right, that he's an administrative law guy, and, that, and those guys tend to not not for their philosophies particularly attract. They're not lightning rods. Is that correct? Or Well, Kavanaugh certainly was a lightning rod because it was a different time. Oh. And uh, even before the... But I mean, uh, the, but I mean for, his, for his jurisprudence, it wasn't so much. It yeah. wasn't for, I mean, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there wasn't there wasn't anything in his jurisprudence to point to, uh, really. I mean, they tried to glom onto things, but it, it was more that he was a Bush lawyer. And then, of course, the, uh, the Christine Blasey Ford allegations later on. Um, yeah, a lot of the judges coming out of the D.C. circuit, the federal court based in Washington that polices uh, so many federal agencies, a lot of what they're doing is is dry administrative law, very technical. Merrick Garland, for that matter, uh, was very similar to Breyer, um, you know, as, as, as ruling on all these agency uh, regulations. That's why he was thought of as a as a moderate and, and you know, 
you know, why Obama picked him as perhaps a, a compromise pick. Yeah, Breyer sailed through because he didn't have those kind of controversies in his background. Uh, also importantly, and this, you know, this can't be understated, uh, the biggest uh, fights that we have is when the Senate is, confer- is, is controlled by the party opposite the White House. And both Breyer and Ginsburg, uh, and for that matter, Sotomayor and Kagan, came through when Democrats controlled uh, both the White House and the Senate, whereas uh, Robert Bork, Clarence Thomas, those big controversial ones, uh, that those were made, the, the appointments, the nominations were made by Republican presidents, but then the Democrats uh, had control of the Senate. It's, you know, we haven't had a confirmation hearing uh, where with that kind of divided government since Clarence Thomas in 1991. Um, you know, the Democrats uh, tried to do what they could with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Barrett under Trump, but they didn't have the votes uh, in the Senate, especially forcing McConnell's hand to get rid of the filibuster um, for uh, for Gorsuch. And so uh, we'll see the next time this happens, if you know, if now if the Republicans pick up those Senate seats in, in Georgia uh, and Breyer retires in, in you know next year, as could happen. Uh, hmm. What is that going to look like or whatever the next time is when we have that divided government? Because that's that's a big deal. Historically speaking, over the whole uh, breadth of our history, there have been 164 Supreme Court nominations and 127 have been confirmed. That's 77 percent, just over three quarters. But it's a huge difference when we have that, as I said, united versus divided government. When the Senate and the presidency are controlled by the same party, the confirmation rate's 90 percent. When it's different parties, it's less than 60%. Uh, and especially during presidential election years, where only two of 10 nominees uh, in presidential election years under divided government have been confirmed, whereas 18 of 20 have been during united government. So those kind of very basic, bare political facts uh, are tremendously important when we're talking about confirmation battles. Yeah, I was just going to say in the book, you do have this wonder. It was, I didn't want to quote it directly because it's so many numbers to throw at a listener in an audio form, but you have this wonderful, very specific, detailed enumeration of the ones that were withdrawn, that were um, passed, kind of confirmed. And, and, and on your website for the book, which is a standalone website for the book, you have a, a very helpful PDF that, that people can download, listeners can download, and it, it goes into it very detailed graphic form all of the all of the numerical the new breaking down number data crunching kind of if you're if you're, if you're a numbers person that's the pdf for you so um i wanted to discuss uh, yeah just to put a finer point on that yeah if you go to supremedisorder.com <laughs> you can download for free that statistical appendix and really nerd out on it and be very popular at your next virtual cocktail party Oh, absolutely. It's just, it was really fascinating to see who was, who appointed who, what their party was, how many years they served and that kind of thing. It was just, just the data, the data geeks dream document. Uh, I wanted to mention, I wanted to, getting back to the question of, of activism and form and kind of using the court as a way of shaping society. You mentioned that Rehnquist, or actually, I, I don't know that I should say that that's what Rehnquist was doing, but you say that Rehnquist tried to limit the number of the grants of certiori but you don't really go into a, into why that was. Is it just a, was it just a matter of, of workload, or or was he saying there are too many issues that the court is deciding and we should stay out of it, or was it just an efficiency issue for that? It's actually hard to know exactly why we've had this this trend. So the court is now deciding about sixty five to seventy cases a year uh, after oral argument, which is less than half of what it was doing thirty thirty five years ago. Um, 
part of it is the digital age and well, judges less, across less the country. It's really interesting. I was just going to interrupt to say less than half. They're, they're deciding so many fewer. That's a huge drop. It is. It is. Well, part of it is, you know, the one of, you know, one of the Rehnquist certainly thought this way and Roberts does even more that the, the court's principal role is to uh, ensure uniformity of the law across the country. And so if there's what's known as a circuit split, that is, there's a difference of opinion on a given issue of law between uh, different uh, federal courts of appeal across the country, then that sort of case is more likely to be taken up by the Supreme Court. Well, John Roberts uh, has said uh, that because of the digital age and we can all do instantaneous legal research, there are less circuit splits for the Supreme Court to resolve. I'm, hmm. you know, I'm not sure about that uh, because the I mean, it's it's um, the, the the rate of, of grants of cert. This is the legal term for you know court taking a petition for review uh, kind of has ebbed and flowed over the years. It's not that it's uh, always been on a downward uh, uh, trajectory and it's not necessarily that you know we've had the Internet for a long time now. It's not that it's uh, you know always been easier for judges to, to reach that that uniformity. But it's it's that reason. It's also, I think. Uh, uh, Roberts, even more than Rehnquist, again, wants to keep the, the court away from controversies, uh, if at all possible, and so will decline to take cases unless they're absolutely forced into doing it because there's such uh, differences in, in, in different parts of the country or such a major issue or a major piece of law has been struck down by the lower courts or, or, or something like that. Uh, you know, I, I, w- I think most lawyers, whatever your politics is, I don't know, this is not an ideological position, I think would prefer the Supreme Court to be taking up more cases, to be pronouncing more, uh, uh, you know, back in the day, it's it's not that their output is necessarily less. They, they just write many more pages per case than they, than they used to. And there are more concurrences, more dissents. Um, th- this evolution of the court's workload is a continuing uh, topic of debate. But as someone, you know, with Cato, and I direct Cato's amicus program, uh, filing friend of the court briefs, uh, supporting different parties at the Supreme Court, it's frustrating to me that what I consider to be very uh, well positioned and important issues are simply not taken up by the by the Supreme Court for reasons that we don't know because they don't tell us the reasons why they decline to take up cases. Yeah, I was going to say that um, when I was a young woman, when and Souter was Souter was on the court, it just seemed to me that just reading the headlines, he was always complaining about his the workload. He just seemed like I just felt like why don't you just resign? He just seemed so unhappy and he kept belly aching. And I thought, do you know how many people want to be Supreme Court justices? <laughs> was, was it, was, why, why was he so unhappy? I just, just didn't, I mean, why didn't he resign? I just out of curiosity. Yeah. Souter, Souter was a, uh, a different kind. I think he was a throwback. I mean, he uh, didn't like Washington, didn't like being in a big city. Um, he thought the work was, he, he called it getting a lobotomy every year or something like that. Um, uh, I guess he's just happiest, you know, going back to his small town and his home in, in New Hampshire and staying there. I don't know what he was expecting when he accepted the nomination. I mean, whether that was purely because he felt it was so prestigious and being asked by the president, he couldn't turn him down. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Souter is unlike, I think any other modern justice, not in terms of ideology, but just in terms of his personality and the way that he, uh, uh, didn't fit in uh, to the the Washington scene, the kind of uh, elite lawyers, the Supreme Court bar, all all that sort of thing. Well, speaking of backgrounds and 
you, you discuss uh, so many of the prof- so many of the people now are are, are professional academics. But I, before we get to that, I just wanted to say that was Sandra Day O'Connor unusual in that she was a state judge and also she'd been a, basically a state legislator, but a legislator. But would someone of her relatively minimal background? make it today because there's so much all the credentialism and the Yale and the Harvard and so forth would she would she just be dismissed in well, the, in she went to Stanford Law School that's not uh, that's, that's not terrible so oh, that's true. Uh, uh, but uh, it used to be that there was a, a more uh, more difference among the backgrounds that you did have state and federal legislators uh, cabinet secretaries, State judges, uh, professors, you know, people from you know, still always, always lawyers, but from different types of uh, you know, different practices and what have you. Uh, the last forty years or so, you know, O'Connor was nominated in eighty-one. Uh, since then, everybody uh, had been a lower federal judge, a circuit judge, except for Elena Kagan, uh, who was Solicitor General, uh, the, the the federal government's representative before the Supreme Court. Um, and, uh, you know, some people say, you know, maybe we would be nice to have uh, a bigger difference. And especially even if you're going to pick people with uh, a little bit of federal judicial experience, uh, so many federal judges previously were prosecutors and we don't have public interest litigators. We don't have, uh, public defenders, uh, professors, uh, some of those happened under, under Trump, who was looking for a more, uh, uh, intellectual sort of judge to appoint to the circuit courts. But, um, you know, a little more diversity of experience, even among lawyers, might be uh, better. But, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor at the time was effectively the highest ranking Republican woman lawyer in the country. And she was a, a, a state intermediate appellate judge in Arizona after having been a state Senate majority leader. So she was no slouch. And as I said, had gone to Stanford Law School. She was no dummy, but definitely a different profile uh, than the people we see on shortlists these days. We talked about public interest uh, lawyers, and I guess Ginsburg would be the classic case of that. And as which, which could she be appointed? These, I mean, the ACLU is so much more partisan than it used to be. Would that is it likely that someone from the ACLU would would get through a, a Republican controlled Senate at this point? Or it was more, it would be more controversial now. Uh, and of yeah. course, Ginsburg was wasn't appointed to the Supreme Court straight from. Her role in the ACLU. She was uh, on the D.C. Circuit for a few years, um, uh, ten years actually. She was appointed by Carter to the D.C. Circuit, and then by Clinton uh, to the uh, to the uh, to the Supreme Court. Um, uh, it, it would be it would be more controversial now. That you know, that's basically all I can say. She was older as well. She was sixty. She was the last nominee, the only nominee other than Merrick Garland, who was a special case in twenty sixteen, uh, who was even nominated. Uh, over the age of 60, over the age of 55. Uh, and so that, that youth movement um, uh, is also a thing because uh, presidents want their nominees to have a long-lasting impact. Or for that matter, I, I also left out Harriet Myers. I think she was 63 or 62 when George W. Bush uh, nominated her. And that, of course, was also a, a failed nomination, didn't even get to a vote. Yeah, I was going to ask you about why. Why was it that the the two Bush administrations, they there was they just seemed. I guess that was one of the reasons that the Federalist Society 
stepped into the matter because the, the, there was the Harriet Meyer. And that was, and you just, well, one of the reasons I wanted to ask you about Harriet Meyer's was you discuss in the book the issue of cronyism and Supreme Court nominations. Very fascinatingly, you talk about Lyndon Johnson and Harry Truman. And, and in this case, I mean, B- George W. Bush was, Harriet Meyer's was just, just so out of her depth. And it's, she's kind of a tragic figure because she just, she just was, it was just painful to watch, apparently, that it was, I mean, the senators, at first, first she had to, well, you can, if you wouldn't mind discussing the issue of cronyism. Yeah. The point. Um, I mean, historically, cronyism was a big part of how you got appointed. You had to be a friend of the president and you had to mollify different factions within the president's party or within, within the Senate. And a lot of those people were just, you know, political operatives. I mean, lawyers still, but of differing skills and, and what have you. Um, and so cronyism was an issue both, you know, 200 years ago, as well as, as, as you were saying, Truman and LBJ, um, LBJ had a, had a failed elevation of justice Abe Fortas in 1968, um, mm-hmm. bipartisan opposition, uh, uh, ethical issues, and as well seeing Fortas as being just, you know, just a friend of LBJ, an advisor on various policy issues, including, uh, going over maps of, uh, Southeast Asia about where to bomb and. And and things like this. And so in a time, in a more modern time, when elite credentials were so important and for conservatives, dedication to originalism and textualism and legal theories and and things like that, for Bush to pick um, someone who was personally conservative, absolutely, and a successful lawyer, let's let's be clear, she had been uh, uh, president of the Dallas Bar Association, uh, chairman of her law firm, which for a woman of that generation was very significant. I mean, clearly yeah, an overachiever, you know, had gone to uh, Southern Methodist University. I mean, she was, she was no slouch, a success, you know, White House counsel, definitely a successful and savvy lawyer, but mm-hmm. hadn't, didn't have the experience with constitutional law or some of the national legal issues that one expect, uh, one expects modern uh, justices uh, to have. And then when she was going through her meetings with senators uh, and doing what are called murder board practice sessions with uh, government staffers where they kind of simulate the confirmation hearings. She just was not doing a good job. And so uh, Andy Card, then the chief of staff to George W. Bush, uh, kind of said, you know, uh, to the president, you know, she's just not she's just not doing well. And and she eventually withdrew. Uh, and he uh, uh, Bush ended up nominating Alita, who was much more of the profile of um, you know, a judge's judge and a, and a uh, jurisprudential uh, uh, intellect and, and, and those sorts of things. And so the Federalist Society, that was uh, in 2005 when the Federalist Society really uh, reached uh, the heights of its role that it's maintained ever since as effectively the, the screener or the signaling mechanism for showing that not simply that you were a good Republican or a you know, crony, a party man or woman, uh, but that you had the intellectual chops and signaled that you were uh, willing to stand publicly for potentially controversial opinions. Well, now I'd like to turn to, um, so, as I mentioned, your book is full of what I, when I was a kid, there was a, a comic comic uh, on the comics page. There was a feature called fun facts to know and tell. And I, I, I found many, I, as I was uh, in your book there, it's, it's a scholarly book, but it does have these fascinating um, facts that, that I, I did not know. So I'd like to throw some of those at you to, to discuss some of them. The first one, number one, when was the first public hearings on a Supreme Court? When were the first public hearings on a Supreme Court nominee held? And was that seen as historic at the time? 
and are the transcripts a matter of public record? I'll let you tell us when the first were the first public hearings were held. Yeah, uh, this surprises some people. It wasn't you know right from the beginning. No, we didn't have hearings for uh, judicial nominees, Supreme Court nominees for the first what hundred and forty years, I guess, of the country. Nineteen sixteen was the first time. Woodrow Wilson, uh, this was a presidential election year, he nominated Louis Brandeis, who was the first Jewish nominee, which was controversial, um, but also uh, perhaps even more controversial. He was a, a crusading progressive, fully on board with Wilson's uh, regulatory scheme, the administrative agencies, all of that sort of thing, uh, which was, uh, you know, ran into a buzzsaw uh, in the Senate. Uh, and so they decided for the very first time to hold hearings, uh, although it was seen as unseemly for the nominee himself to testify. So Brandeis did not. But uh, I think there were 18 days of hearings by supporters and opponents of the nomination. He was eventually confirmed, although it took more than four months, the longest of any nominee that we've had uh, in our history. The eventual uh, margin was a little wider than Kavanaugh or Barrett or Gorsuch, some of these more modern ones during polarized times. But still, very contentious process. And then after Brandeis joined the court, uh, one of his new colleagues, Charles Evans Hughes, resigned to run against Wilson in that fall's presidential election. So if you think that 2020 or 2016 were the height of uh, controversy or uh, twisting together presidential politics in the Supreme Court, I'll see those years and raise you uh, 1916. The, the first nominee, uh, uh, to testify at his own hearing on, in kind of like open-ended uh, questions. That wasn't until 1938 with Felix Frankfurter. And it didn't become a regular occurrence until the 1950s when uh, Dixiecrat senators, Southern Democrats, were concerned about Brown versus Board of Ed Education, civil rights issues, desegregation, that they wanted to question nominees about that. But still, those were very short hearings uh, that questioning didn't tend to uh, affect the eventual uh, vote. Uh, I opened my book with the uh, nomination of Byron White in 1962 uh, by John F. Kennedy. This is a new generation of president uh, and of justice. He was just 45 when White was nominated. Uh, a, a unique individual in our judicial and history and in our, in our public life. He had been a runner-up for the Heisman Trophy and the highest paid player and leading rusher in the NFL while a law student at Yale Law School. So I don't think we're going to replicate that on the Supreme Court uh, anytime soon. Uh, but his hearing lasted an hour and a half at which he himself was questioned for all of 15 minutes, mostly about his uh, football playing career. So things have, have really changed. And hearings weren't televised gavel to gavel until Robert Bork, by the way, and, and not because Bork was known to be controversial, uh, but rather C-SPAN didn't get the license or permission to broadcast all of the Senate uh, proceedings until that year. Well, it's interesting. You, you anticipated, because I was going to say, number two, when was the, the second, the first time a nominee? And you said, well, Frankfurter, so we covered that, although I'm going to get back to Frankfurter in just a moment. But a number three, I was going to ask the first time such hearings were televised, but you make an interesting distinction that you just did that I, in the book, uh, I believe it's the first time they were televised were Sandra Day O'Connor, but you're saying that the it was Bork that was gavel to gavel. So there was snippets of O'Connor or? That's right. Uh, well, and for that matter, John Paul Stevens uh, in 1975, there, there were cameras. They just didn't, oh, you know, they, 
they would they would have a snippet for the nightly news. Uh, but there mm-hmm. wasn't C-SPAN didn't exist for Sandra Day O'Connor. There wasn't a, a network that was broadcasting, you know, gavel to gavel the entire hearings uh, or for that matter, Scalia and Rehnquist in 1986. And Scalia, of course, was confirmed unanimously uh, in 1986, if you can believe it, uh, in part because Republicans controlled the Senate then. Uh, but also he was very affable and charming and the first Italian-American nominee, which was important. And and Rehnquist was seen as more controversial and took the heat from him. But anyway, it was the following year when C-SPAN, uh, as I said, uh, got full permission from the Senate to broadcast all of their hearings, uh, all of those hearings that uh, uh, the public was uh, treated to, to to all of that. Well, how things have changed, too, because with, with Kavanaugh and Connie Barrett, it wasn't just C-SPAN, which is kind of the geek network for the legal geek network but that was on everything it was npr it was all of the major networks it was on the internet it was and that was gavel to gavel with coney barrett and and only after um the controversy with blasey ford the the the, kind of the resumption that went under the controversial part of kavanaugh right kavanaugh was not being covered very extensively and all of a sudden everything blew up and then it became that 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 just that one day right it was this this massive network presence and so forth with Kavanaugh, but, but Coney Barrett was from the beginning to the end. And I just wanted to ask you, since, since I, I have you for only a little while today, that you make the point in the book that you're very, you're very adamant that there really isn't a much point in, in, or much value in televised or, or public hearings for, for the uh, Supreme Court nom- nominees. But now that you've had the Amy Con- Coney Barrett experience under 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 your belt do you was there anything edifying in that i personally as a lay person found it rather inspiring i mean i thought i I thought i thought that although there was obviously the grandstanding what jonathan turley called the milk carton you know showbiz business with the pictures of the trying to make it into a referendum on obamacare but don't you what what did what was your reaction to the coney barrett nomination process did you or sorry hearings Right. Well, it, I mean, it, it humanized her and she generally gained uh, popular support uh, as people got to know her and saw how charming and disarming she was, you know, not just uh, an intellect, but very uh, warm and, and, and human and personable. Um, so it, it, it helped her confirmation process. It helped the Republicans to have those hearings. But um, I don't think you really learned about her views, at least uh, not anything that you couldn't uh, gain from from reading her published opinions or her law review articles, what have you. And that's why I came down ultimately uh, against having public confirmation hearings for, for justices, because in this day and age, we can read instantly on the internet uh, all of their public papers, all of their writings, all of their speeches, all of their uh, judicial opinions, law review articles, what have you. Um, and so the hearings themselves at best are kabuki theater where people are playing their roles. The senators from the party of the president are lobbing softballs and trying to make the nominee appear nice and smart. The opposition Senate senators are, uh, uh, trying to play gotcha games or get uh, B roll for their reelection campaign videos. Uh, and the nominee, uh, his or her incentive is to talk a lot without saying anything. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, you can, uh, again, the nominee can become more popular or gain popular support. But um, in, in terms of, you know, uh, edifying the American people about the substance of the law or what the nominee thinks about a given issue, uh, I think uh, on net, uh, the hearings have become more 
damaging to our public discourse than beneficial. So you don't think that the very fact that that in in a way again as as a lay person I kept thinking well the even even her 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 demurals I mean to say I will not answer that those were kind of educational too weren't they to say I really can't I really can't comment on that or is that just just by sheer repetition it became kind of pointless. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I, well, you tell me. Look, uh, I'm I might be jaded or I might be uh, too much, uh, uh, you know, inside the process. Of, um, looking over the last half dozen hearings, you know, Barrett's probably the exception that proves the rule because most of them uh, have just been nasty and have made the nominee and the Supreme Court look worse than than it would otherwise. And and uh, as you mentioned. Uh, uh, the Democrats uh, you know, having the, the the cardboard cutouts and you know talking all about Obamacare and the election and not any of her views uh, it became just a, a purely political exercise and and not about the the nominee per se or or you know her well, legal philosophy that that was just not going to be revealed. Uh, look, the Senate can still debate nominees; they should, uh, and they can still have closed hearings as they do now to discuss the. The FBI files, the background checks, uh, sensitive uh, financial records, uh, uh, things like that. And they can have uh, people testifying pro and con. Um, but at the end of the day, if you look at what's happened to the last you know, 15, 20 years of nominations, I don't know if it's, it's just, as I said, at, at best, it's, it's, it's kabuki theater. But I mean, this is kind of a hypothetical uh, uh, argument I'm making. I don't think confirmation hearings are going anywhere. Senators like the chance to grandstand or to throw softballs or, or or what have you. So I don't think I don't think that reform is going to happen. Well, I was just going to ask between Frank. I'm sorry, between Brandeis and Frankfurter, there were did they just the Senate discon, they they continued with public hearings, but it was Frankfurter testified in public. And what, why was that? Did Frankfurter like to show off his brains, or did was or was there suspicion of him on the same grounds as Brandeis, or did it? Or was it just that there were newsreels now? And why, why did Frankfurter become testify and, and start that that tradition? Yeah, I mean, Frankfurter was Jewish as well, but I don't think it was it was, that was just a coincidence. Uh, it's, it's not that everyone in between testified in, in private. They didn't have hearings uh, for most of them. I, I think Harlan Stone, when he was nominated in 1925, they held hearings on a specific scandal that he investigated as attorney general. And so there were questions just about that particular issue. It wasn't wide ranging, uh, open-ended uh, uh, questioning of, of the sort. <clears throat> but um, most of them, almost all of them did not have hearings. For that matter, William Howard Taft, when he was nominated in five years after Brandeis did not have uh, uh, any hearings. It was just um, uh, uh, Roosevelt's policies of Frankfurt was nominated by FDR in 1939, uh, had, had become controversial enough, and senators felt they needed to examine nominees more. Um, and uh, and still at that time, uh, again, it wasn't every nominee that, that started to have uh, hearings, but it became more of a more seen as you know senators need to have more of a public role in examining the nominations. Well, another, another, just to finish up the, um, the, the fun facts, I thought another, the last one I went and mentioned was that the first time that a former clerk served on the court with the justice that that person had served for. Could you mention who that was? That was kind of interesting. 
Uh, I mean, you 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 stumped me. I mean, I I haven't uh, reread the trivia in my, in my book over some time. Who, who was it? That- <laughs> well, the, I believe it was the first time a former clerk served on the court with the justice the person had served for was. Oh my gosh, I've I've forgotten too. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, I think it was it was Kennedy Kennedy and. Well, Kennedy and Gorsuch, yeah, Gorsuch served with yeah, Kennedy. No, I, th- I thought you were saying the first former Supreme Court clerk to uh, to serve on oh, the no, Supreme Court himself. I forget who that was, but yes, Gorsuch made history in that uh, he served with his boss, whom he had clerked for uh, thirty years earlier. Kavanaugh also, by the way, was a uh, was a Kennedy clerk. Yeah, I was just going to say, apropos, of, I'd like to discuss the the issue of clerks, if you don't mind, for a couple minutes. That you make the point that many of Clarence Thomas's clerks are highly reputed judges such as Naomi Rao and Ellison Jones Russing, although Naomi Rao is very new, but Rushing has been active for quite a while. But is Thomas unique in the number of clerks that have gone on to be judges or is that just, or is that common enough? Well, it happens more and more because the modern age of law clerks, I mean, it's really the last 50 years. Before that, it was uh, less standardized. I was a law clerk. I clerked for a Fifth Circuit judge uh, 18 years ago. Um, and you're, you're basically, it's like your first job out of law school. When you're a Supreme Court clerk, it's your second job. You've already clerked for a lower court judge, and then you go on to a Supreme Court justice. And uh, you're helping the the judge. You're writing research memos. You're helping with drafts of opinions, uh, 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 that sort of thing. Um, but uh, yes, uh, a lot of uh, Trump's um, circuit appointees, uh, more were Thomas clerks than than anyone else. And I think that shows the intellectual commitment and seriousness of Justice Thomas and, and his uh, uh, capacity as a, as a mentor and of picking people who are uh, intellectually rigorous and committed to originalism and, and textualism. Well, spe- speaking of which, at this point, I just want to remind listeners that we we're talking today with Ilya Shapiro, author of the 2020 book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court. And that's a perfect segue, Ilya, to to the matter of of textualism and originalism. And I wonder if you could discuss uh, originalism and textualism. And, for example, Neil Gorsuch really shocked a great number of social conservatives with his his ruling in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, with we define sex to encompass sexual orientation. And many social conservatives, such as Robert P. George of Princeton, were highly critical of that decision. George called it. Uh, courts such as reasoning sophistical and said the court has not applied the law as written it has rewritten the law so could you discuss a little bit about the difference between textualism and originalism and that famous quote from kagan that we're all textualists now but there people can kind of conflate textualism and originalism and they're quite quite different right one is simple well you tell me well, I mean, they're they're quite similar, actually. Oh, they uh, original, text, originalism is basically textualism for the Constitution. Uh, originalism looks at the original public meaning of the Constitution when it was enacted, of the constitutional provision when it was enacted. So the First Amendment was ratified in uh, 1791. So what does freedom of the press mean or freedom of speech mean in 1791? Not Not what anyone intended. A lot of people talk about original intent. That, that's erroneous. It doesn't matter what James Madison or Thomas Jefferson or John Adams, what they thought about the 
definition of interstate commerce or the scope of uh, federal power to coin money or what have you, because they could have had lots of different intents. There's a, you know, Congress or the founding fathers were a collective body. Different people might've thought different things. So you look at the text itself, because that is what the law is. It's, It's what you actually enact. And that's why the Federalist Papers are important. They explain the meaning of the Constitution at the time, or the 14th Amendment was enacted in 1868. So what does equal protection of the laws mean in 1868? If you don't like that, then there's an amendment process uh, uh, for the Constitution. Textualism is uh, uh, a theory to interpret uh, statutes, so laws passed by Congress as opposed to the Constitution. Now, most statutory interpretation is done with laws that are more recent than 1868, let alone 1789. Uh, And so it's kind of easier to understand what a given word means. You know, the Clean Water Act passed in 1971, 72, where we still have litigation over where, or the Clean Air Act, whether Congress can regulate, the EPA can regulate uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions and and things like this. So, you you know, there, there are debates about the meanings of different words there. Uh, this particular issue that, that arose in the Bostock case that, that you referenced was about an employment discrimination law passed in 1964, the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And so the issue was on the basis of sex. If you can't discriminate on the basis of sex, does that mean you also can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity? And the court ruled six to three in an opinion by Gorsuch, as you said, Uh, that uh, sex is inextricably connected to sexual orientation and uh, gender identity. And so even though nobody in 1964 would have thought that they were uh, enacting employment law protections for uh, sexual orientation or or gender identity, I mean, you know, uh, uh, homosexuality was still considered a mental disorder and I don't think you know anybody had really heard of transgenderism uh, at the time, but that's not the point. Everyone agrees that the issue isn't what you know what Congress would have intended. It's what are the, the what are the meaning? What's the meaning of the words on the page? And so that case was totally a debate among between textualists, where Gorsuch said, "Well, sex that's part of sexual orientation," and Kavanaugh uh, in dissent and Alito said, uh, "Well, uh, sure, but." You know, even in 2020, let alone 1964, if someone's fired for being gay, we don't say that he was fired on the basis of sex or because of sex. And so it's taking that individual word out of the context of the phrase, of the sentence, of the, the structure of the statute. So, I, you know, I agree that, you know, with with uh, critics of Gorsuch for that particular case, but it's not that he was rewriting the law or reinventing the law. I think he was being hypertextualist, if you will, or too literalist. Uh, but again, that's a debate among textualists. It was not Justice Ginsburg or Sotomayor saying, well, society has evolved and therefore the meaning of the words need to evolve or uh, those kinds of theories. Well, I'd like to ask you now some questions about your, in the book uh, dealing with Kamala Harris, just because she's very much in the news. And one incident you mentioned in the book is is the rather strange bit of questioning by Harris of Brett Kavanaugh during the, his Senate confirmation hearings. And she, she had this really strange innu- moments of innuendo where she kept asking Kavanaugh about contacts he may have had with a law firm run by an associate of Donald Trump. And what does that exchange, in your opinion, illustrate about the whole confirmation process and about Harris herself and the way Kavanaugh was treated? It just seemed like you, met, you, met, you discuss it in the book. So I think it's, it's 
it's incumbent on me to ask you to comment on it. Yeah, this this um, this was in the first part of the hearing. This is before Christine Blasey Ford. So um, uh, the attack by Democrats uh, was, first of all, that he had been a Bush uh, lawyer. He had been in the in the Bush White House. And, you know, was he complicit in approving uh, torture in Guantanamo or hiding other things that uh, might be politically controversial? And so there's this kind of debate over document production, kind of a really boring, phony war. Uh, also with Trump, um, uh, you know, was he in you know, the, the Mueller investigation and Trump's complicity in various legal actions? What, did Kavanaugh know about this? Was he uh, you know, through through knowing uh, people at the law firm that had defended Donald Trump? And uh, Harris was basically on a fishing expedition, but she made it seem that she knew exactly what she was driving at. And Kavanaugh was confused because uh, he wasn't sure exactly what that was. And that ended up being... Uh, a nothing burger. I mean, she didn't. She didn't later on disclose that. Oh well, I have evidence that you actually talked to the Trump's lawyer or, or, or anything like that. There, there's nothing that that really came out of that exchange. I mean, it showed that uh, Kamala Harris and Cory Booker as well, who also ended up running for president. I mean, they were trying to uh, heighten their their profiles. This is part of the mm-hmm. reason why uh, you know why I say that we should do away with these public confirmation hearings because it's just an opportunity to to grandstand either for re-election or in this case for for presidential aspirations. Well, the other other Kamala Harris uh, question I'd like to ask is, is relates to your book because you're you are the the authority on the confirmation process. And in, in the debate with Mike Pence, the only vice president debate of the 2020 election, she, she got into this long uh, quotation about Lincoln and that Lincoln, honest Abe, she says, Honest Abe said it's the not right thing to do, to, that is to appoint someone in election year, and the American people deserve a decision. And what what are the facts of that, of the Lincoln the Lincoln nomination? Because you, you deal with it in the book, and I wonder if you could just, was, was she just mixed up? Did some aide just dredge dread this up out of Google for her? Or was yeah, uh, this was for the Roger Taney seat, for the Chief Justice uh, seat. He died about a month before the election, and Lincoln did not make a nomination. Um, and she was, Harris was saying, well, this is like here where, where Justice Ginsburg died and yet Donald Trump has made the nomination. The, the thing is, the Senate was out of session. It's not like now where the Senate is always in session and Lincoln physically uh, you know, could not call them back. The Civil War was, was going on, transportation being what it was, communication. There was, there was simply not enough time to go through this whole process. But also, uh, he was concerned about being reelected. He was concerned about keeping his party united. And if he, uh, if he made a nomination, then that would antagonize a, another uh, faction within his party or key individuals that were contenders for the seat or their allies. And so it was much more politically um, uh, strategic for him not to make that nomination. Now, after he won re-election, he uh, nominated Sam and Chase, who had his enemies within the party. Again, if that nomination had happened to him a month uh, earlier than that uh, might have been more controversial, even among Republicans. Uh, and, and Chase was then confirmed during the uh, during the lame duck or you know, the, at the end of the, the first uh, 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 Lincoln term. So this was not that Lincoln, out of some sort of uh, grand principle, said that uh, he should not make a, a nomination so close to the election that the winner of the election should make the nomination. In fact, had Lincoln lost, uh, he still would have nominated probably still Chase and and the then still Republican Senate would have would have confirmed him. So so Harris was kind of opportunistically painting Lincoln as this 
not not the politician that he was. I mean, he was an honorable, principled guy, but in that case, he wasn't doing it, acting on principle per se. He was just dealing with the real political realities of the time. Yeah, I mean, I have no idea whether whether Harris knew that what she was saying was a misinterpretation of history or whether uh, you know her advisors told her to paint it this way. But yeah, what, what she said was was not an accurate depiction uh, either of how things went down or of Lincoln's motivations. That's very helpful. Uh, I just want to ask one one more substantive question, and then I'll uh, I know I have to wrap up because you're a busy guy. But could you you discuss interestingly the role of the solo dissent and why Clarence, and you mentioned that Clarence Thomas tends to write roughly twice as many as say Sonia Sotomayor. What is the purpose of the solo dissent? Is it just, I feel so strongly about this that I must put on the record or is it positioning future litigation or both? Yeah. Some justices feel they don't need to uh, get every jot and tittle of, of an opinion that they're joining right. Uh, others say, well, that, you know, I, I, I want to make it absolutely clear where I stand. And Thomas uh, has led the league for some time in his solo uh, dissents. For that matter, John Roberts and Elena Kagan have yet to write a solo dissent, either one of them. Uh, 15 years for Roberts on the bench and 10 for Kagan. And they don't do that because they see themselves as more compromisers and unifiers and, and things like that. And it's less important to get out there their particular, uh, you know, minutia, what have you. And Thomas thinks, well, you know, eventually this is this has got to be the right way. Uh, the most famous solo dissent in our history is probably uh, Justice uh, Harlan in uh, 1896 in Plessy versus Ferguson, uh, and that, of course, uh, ended up being vindicated in Brown versus Board. You know, Harlan said that separate was inherently unequal, and and that you know, that made it the uh, the most famous solo dissent uh, in our history. That's happened from time to time. Justice Scalia had one of those about the independent council, that it was a, a violation of the separation of powers. And eventually uh, Congress let the independent council statute lapse as well. So uh, these these solo dissents can can become the law decades later. What was Were any of Frank Murphy's on the, Jap- the internment of the Japanese Americans, were those solo dissents? Or? No, uh, Korematsu was, I forget what the eventual vote on that was, but it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't a solo dissent. Oh, it wasn't a dissent. That's right. Okay. So, or, 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 okay. So I want to ask this one, this one question. Is there any significant jurisprudence coming out of the pandemic? Is there, or any of these cases, or is, it, or is the time frame just too shortened to for the court to play any particular role in the civil liberties, religious liberties issues rising from the pandemic? Or it's that's just not, it just doesn't, there's not time for them, right? It's getting resolved or, or is there? Yeah, n- none of these cases that are pandemic-related have uh, come in sort of the the normal process in the sense of uh, you know bubbling up uh, from uh, full opinions below and then fully briefed and accepted on cert at the Supreme Court with oral argument. They've all become they've all been emergency appeals without oral argument uh, on these emergency uh, uh, briefs or or requests to stay the lower court opinions or, or what have you. And so uh, they, they're certainly precedential uh, in the sense that if we have future pandemics or future emergencies, they will be cited for various propositions. Um, but a lot of them, you know, are not in detail. Uh, uh, there was an opinion in May that where, where John Roberts uh, wrote a one-page concurrence that ended up being cited all over the place. Uh, and then the, that ended in, 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 the, in the Nevada that, that was in the, the Nevada casino versus church uh, opening case. Uh, but then uh, just within the last month um, uh, with the, the Brooklyn Catholic Diocese, 
where it was found that the, the city and state of New York were treating religious institutions less favorable than similarly situated secular ones. And, and there the court wrote a longer opinion saying that you can't do that. And that, I think, is going to be uh, you know, the, the biggest precedent thus far. Uh, but you know, these, these are shorter opinions. They're not as longstanding, but at least they give us something more to work with than this case from 1905, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, about mandatory vaccination during the smallpox days, which had been the leading precedent of what to do during a pandemic or the powers of state governments during uh, uh, times of public health emergencies. So they, um, you know, uh, pandemics are are special, uh, and so hopefully there won't be uh, reason uh, to use these emergency opinions uh, much longer. Okay, I have. Thank you very much. I have one more. Actually, I have two more questions. Very briefly, do you think that Biden will appoint a bipartisan commission to examine the question of the reform of the Supreme Court? And when he says, "I'll have leading professors," that does that worry? conservatives because the, the law school professoriate in of legal academia is very skewed to the left. So if he just picks, and that, is, that a, is, that, is, that, is that a representative democratic process? Well, he said he's going to have a bipartisan commission. This is, you know, this is the, the continuing debate over court packing during the primaries, Biden, and for that matter, the runner up, Bernie Sanders, both were against court packing. It seems like every other uh, democratic contender were, were for it. Uh, and to be clear, court packing means expanding the court, adding justices for ideological purposes. Uh, most famously, FDR had a failed court packing scheme in, in 1937. That was hugely unpopular, leading to the Democrats uh, having big losses in the 1938 midterms. But anyway, so the, 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 the argument goes by some of the Democratic activists that because Republicans broke norms in uh, not considering Garland in 2016, and instead uh, quickly nominating and confirming Barrett in 2020, that the re proper response to that is to add more justices to give uh, more Democratic appointed uh, seats there uh, uh, on the court. And Biden eventually during the general election said, look, uh, I don't know about court packing, but I will appoint a, a bipartisan commission to look at judicial reform. Typically when presidents uh, appoint uh, these commissions, it's to make an issue go away, to kick it down the road. I'm sure Biden doesn't really want to deal with uh, whether it's court packing or anything else. He wants uh, you know, the, to be occupied with something else uh, six months down the road. Uh, it's probably uh, an easy thing for him to do to appoint this commission. If he only appoints left-wing law professors, then it's not going to be seen as a legitimate sort of process. So I'm, I'm sure he will try to appoint uh, people with a bipartisan backgrounds and, and different approaches. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, at the end of the day, this is the last, my book, like, like Gaul is divided into, into three parts. The first part is the history. Second part is kind of the modern age. And third part is what have we learned in proposals for the future? Most of these, almost all of these reform proposals are just nibbling around the edges. They're rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic because the problem isn't with the confirmation nomination process. It's uh, with the product. The court rules on so many important issues and as I said, we have divergent theories mapping onto partisan preferences when the parties are ideologically uh, polarized and, and sorted. And so none of these tweaks to, to structure or process are going to do anything because the Titanic is the, is the ship of state. So I don't offer very easy or, or, or quick reforms either. I think you kind of have to unwind uh, the, the constitutional imbalance that the court has allowed in the last decades. And make each of these seats, make the court less important. That's only that's the only way to 
ultimately turn down the heat on these things. But yeah, we'll see if this commission happens. I'd say it's probably more likely than not that there will be a commission, but six, eight months down the road when it issues its findings, we'll, we'll see if there's much appetite in Congress for that or if they're, um, you know, given that the, essentially there's, there's gridlock uh, in Congress with, which, with the narrowest House majority that the Democrats will have in, in decades and a very narrow Senate, uh, regardless of who wins. Uh, these Georgia runoffs, uh, we'll see if there's appetite for any kind of legislation. Well, I was just going to say that, that part of the value, of, I've, I've emphasized the his, this historic parts of your book, the, 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 that it's to do with his, history related. But the, the last part of it is is a very helpful guide to to what some of these reform proposals, and you go through them very fairly and very in great detail. And that's really helpful to understand the strengths and weaknesses of all of them. And also, I want to commend to readers or to listeners your uh, work with the National Constitution Center just recently in the past few months on their libertarians and conservatives and liberals or progressives were asked to draw up what, what their ideal constitution. That was a fascinating project. And that that is worth reading all of your all of the versions and listening to the interviews about that. So and finally, I'd like I'd like to ask you the traditional final question on the New Books Network. And that is, what are you working on now? Yeah. Yeah, what, what you mentioned is that the National Constitution Center had this uh, drafting project with Team Progressive, Libertarian, and Conservative, and uh, you can listen to podcasts and videos that we recorded as well as reading the documents that we came up with. Uh, we like to joke, uh, I was the captain of Team Liberty, we like to joke that our job was the easiest because all we really had to do was add to the end of every constitutional provision, and we mean it. And so we really didn't, we really didn't tinker that much. What am I working now? I'm I'm trying at the end of 2020 to to decompress and kind of uh, you know recharge my batteries. Uh, it's been a busy year in all sorts of respect, not just my Absolutely. book, but obviously pandemic law and the the election litigation and the uh, the new justice and and everything. Uh, but uh, I'll come back in 2021 uh, ready to go on uh, whatever crazy initiatives the the Biden administration might have and uh, trying to hold both bureaucrats and legislators' uh, feet to the constitutional fire. Well, you do a, a wonderful job of that on your Twitter feed again, and, and just in general in your work, uh, as, as, a, as you say, as, a, as a, a person in both camps in academia and the think tank world. So with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Ilya Shapiro, author of the 2020 book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations on the Politics of America's Highest Court. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.